Chapter Eighteen of the Ordeal of Elizabeth by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My dear, said Mrs. Bobby, I'm so sorry to be late. Luncheon was interminable. Why, Julian, who would have expected to see you here? She gave him her hand demurely, with softly shining eyes. Neither her surprise nor her contrition seemed to ring quite true. Gerard's dark eyes were again half-closed beneath their heavy lids. He looked, if a trifle pale, more impassive than usual. "'I don't know why my presence here should cause so much surprise,' he said. "'Most people come here, don't they, some time or another. It's a meeting-place, isn't it?' "'It seems to have been on this occasion,' Mrs. Bobby murmured under her breath. A young man had just stopped and spoken to Elizabeth, and the words might have referred to him. Gerard smiled. "'Won't you come and look at some of these pictures?' he asked. "'I want to talk to you. You awaken my curiosity.' They walked slowly along the gallery which skirted the hall, too deep in conversation to pay much heed to the pictures which hung along their way. Elizabeth's eyes followed them, while she was repeating mechanically, "'Yes, the portraits are extremely fine.' "'But not one,' the young man declared with blunt gallantry to compare with yours. It's by all odds the most beautiful picture here." "'Do you really think so?' said Elizabeth gently. "'I'm very glad.' She had heard the sentiment rather differently put, perhaps a hundred times. Yet it seemed now to have all the charm of novelty. The young man, a very slight acquaintance, charmed to have called up that glow of pleasure to her face, redoubled his efforts to entertain her. He was sorry when Mrs. Bobby returned with Gerard and bore her off. She was delighted when I said that about her picture, he thought. There's nothing like flattering a girl, if you know how to do it delicately. We really must be going, Elizabeth, said Mrs. Bobby, consulting her engagement book. We have at least a dozen visits, and we promised, you know, to go to Mr. Dauteville's musicale. That reminds me that I did, too, said Gerard. I'm glad you spoke of it. "'We shall see you there, then,' said Mrs. Bobby, as he placed them in the carriage, and they drove off. "'I am feeling utterly crushed,' she continued, turning to Elizabeth, and looking under the circumstances very cheerful. "'Julian has been giving me a terrible lecture. He thinks me, I see very clearly, quite unfit to have the care of you. He says that you are not as strong as you seem, that I have been dragging you around, entirely for my own pleasure, apparently.' from one thing to another till you're quite worn out, and that you will be ill if I don't take care. He has quite frightened me. But there, Elizabeth, you don't look very tired, after all. She certainly did not. There was color in her cheeks, a light in her eyes that was at once brilliant and soft. All the lines drawn by sleepless nights had, for the moment at least, disappeared. You don't look badly, Mrs. Bobby repeated. You look, in fact, infinitely better than when I saw you this morning. I feel better, Elizabeth admitted. Just for a moment at the portrait show, I did feel tired and depressed, and he, Mr. Gerard, got alarmed about me. But it was nothing. I'm quite well now, and the portraits are really very interesting. I'm glad you persuaded me to look at them again, Eleanor. I thought you might be repaid, said Mrs. Bobby serenely. What did you think of your own picture? Doesn't it look better in that light?" Elizabeth's face was turned away, so that Mrs. Bobby could only see the rounded outline of her cheek, 
and one small shell-like ear. "'Yes, I, I thought it looked better,' she said in a low voice. "'Perhaps you are right. It must have been the light of the studio that made me feel disappointed in it somehow.' "'Oh, there is everything in the light in which you look at things,' assented Mrs. Bobby cheerfully. And with this profound remark, the two women sank into silence, while the carriage rolled swiftly up the avenue, stopping occasionally as the footmen left cards. To Elizabeth, as she sat gazing out of the window, the prosaic brownstone houses, and the more pretentious ones of marble which broke the monotony here and there, and the brilliant shops which had intruded themselves like parvenus among the quieter and more aristocratic neighbors. All these familiar objects stood out in a softened perspective, which endowed them with lines almost of romance. The wide, commonplace streets had an unwonted charm. The people who walked on them wore an air of curious happiness, merely, no doubt, at finding themselves alive in this beautiful world. Yes, as Mrs. Bobby had so wisely observed, there is everything in the light in which you look at things. I wonder if Mr. Dauteville's musicale will be pleasant, Elizabeth observed dreamily, as they neared Carnegie Hall. The remark was purely perfunctory. Pleasant? Of course it would be pleasant. She hadn't a doubt of it. There will be a lot of queer people there. Musical, literary, and that sort of thing, said Mrs. Bobby vaguely. Some men with long hair will play, and the women, no doubt, will wear wonderful aesthetic gowns. If Julian were not to be there, I should not dream of going. My prophetic instinct tells me that we shall not know a soul. But won't that be rather amusing? suggested Elizabeth. Well, theoretically, yes, said Mrs. Bobby in a rather doubtful tone. But practically, I'm afraid I prefer people whom I know, and who have the conventional amount of hair and lack of brains. Let me confess the truth to you, Elizabeth. I'm not really bohemian. I only pretend to be so at odd moments, when I want to tease Bobby or shock the neighborhood. There isn't at heart, I believe, a more conventional little society wretch than I. However, as you say, that sort of thing is amusing, for one afternoon. And Julian will be there and protect us from the celebrities and tell us who they all are. Julian was fortunately on hand when they arrived, but the room was filled for the most part with people who looked very much like anyone else, and only a few were sufficiently long-haired and eccentric to justify Mrs. Bobby's prediction of their being celebrities of some sort. The host who came forward to meet them was a well-known musician, a man with an intellectual face and dreamy eyes, which lighted up as he welcomed them with eager cordiality. But he could do no more for the present than seat them and give them programs, for the music was about to begin. It was a charming studio, well up near the top of Carnegie Hall, and like most studios it was artistically furnished. The polished floor was strewn with rich rugs, the walls were covered in every nook and cranny with plaques and pictures and rare tapestries and strange eastern weapons. A grand piano took up the whole of one corner, and in another a toy staircase seemed to have been placed entirely for ornament, till it was utilized as a seat by some picturesque-looking girls in large hats. From the broad, casemented window near which Elizabeth sat, she could see an expanse of roofs and chimneys, far down from the dizzy height, and beyond them the river, and further still the winter sunset, fading in cold blues and greens and violets on a still colder sky. Her eyes rested there with dreamy satisfaction. She had no wish to look back into the room, 
to where Gerard was standing close to them, on the other side of Mrs. Bobby. She was still living on the memory of that moment. Was it an hour, or was it years ago? That long look of which the reflected light was still glowing on her face, and in her dreamy eyes. She had no wish to renew it. The recollection was sufficient, for a while at least, yet she was glad to know that he was there. Mrs. Bobby, meanwhile, having embarked on her trip to Bohemia, was disappointed to find it comparatively tame. "'I don't see any one I know,' she said to Gerard, as the piano solo came to an end. "'They look, most of them, depressingly commonplace. But they must be extraordinary in some way, or they wouldn't be here. Tell us who they are, Julian, and introduce them to us if you think we would like them.' "'Why, there are some musical lights,' he answered rather absently, "'who I hope are going to perform for our benefit. "'And there are a few ordinary music-lovers like myself, "'and some literary people, whom I don't know that you would care about.' "'You think us too frivolous, I see,' said Mrs. Bobby. "'But you don't realize how clever I can be if I try. "'And as for Elizabeth, she knows a lot more than she seems to know.' "'Does she?' asked Gerard with a smile and he glanced across at Elizabeth, who still would not meet his eyes. "'She looks very innocent,' he said musingly after a pause. "'I should be sorry to think of her as concealing anything.' A little pang, a thought sharp like a stone, struck Elizabeth for an instant. It was the first rift in the lute. She put it resolutely away from her. "'You think me too stupid, I see,' she said, "'to have any knowledge to conceal.' He had no time to answer before some woman began to sing. She had a beautiful voice, and Elizabeth listened, yet chiefly conscious all the while of the fact that Gerard had managed to shift his position, and was standing directly behind her. "'I never thought you stupid,' he said under cover of the applause, in a low voice that no one but she could hear. "'No, nor ignorant. But I have sometimes thought you frivolous and flippant, and—and a little hard.' You seem, I sometimes think, to take pleasure in showing these qualities to me. Why is it, I wonder? I—I I don't know, she murmured in the same low voice, and gazing straight before her. You—somehow you seem to compel it. You ought to be grateful, I think. At least you know the worst of me. She spoke these words with an absolute unconsciousness of their falseness, and even as they died away on her lips— she glanced across the room and saw Paul Halleck standing in the doorway. That old mythological king whom some vague reminiscence of her school days had conjured up in Elizabeth's mind, he who had every wish fulfilled, till he grew at last to dread his own prosperity. Was it, I wonder, in some such moment of foreboding that the final crash came, or was it when his fears were lulled and his senses stilled, by some delicious overpowering sense of happiness that shut out for the moment all unpleasant thoughts. This, at all events, was the way in which fate overtook Elizabeth. Paul Halleck stood in the doorway, having apparently just arrived. His blue eyes were wandering about the room. They did not fall as yet upon Elizabeth. She did not faint or cry out, or make herself in any way conspicuous. She turned deathly white, and her heart 
which had been beating faster for Gerard's presence, seemed suddenly to stop entirely, as though a piece of ice had been laid on it. And then, in a moment, her heart began to beat again, though faintly. She drew a long breath. Gerard, who was standing directly behind her, could not see her face beneath the shadow of her large hat, yet he felt instinctively that something was wrong. "'Do you feel faint again?' he asked anxiously, thinking to himself that she was really far from well. "'Can I get you anything?' "'No, thank you,' said Elizabeth. "'I felt faint for a moment, but it's over.' It took all the strength that she possessed to speak these words so clearly and distinctly. In making the effort she was not conscious of any plan of deception. She was merely bearing up, instinctively, to the end. She never doubted that it was the end. It had fallen at last, that sword of Damocles which she had learned to dread as the winter wore on, of which she had always been vaguely conscious even in her gayest moments, and had only forgotten, quite forgotten, in that short, delicious hour when she had allowed herself to float off in a dream of happiness never to be realized, from which she was awakened so soon and so rudely. And yet, though it was over, she was not sorry that she had dreamed it. It had been very sweet, worth even the thought, the bitterness of the awakening. Meanwhile, the musicale progressed. A man with long floating hair and fingers of steel thundered out a piano solo. Elizabeth shut her eyes and leaned back in her chair. How fortunate that there was so much music to prevent conversation! But at the first pause she opened her eyes and looked up at Gerard. "'I was wrong when I told you that you knew the worst of me,' she said faintly. "'You'll know it soon.' "'What a terrible prospect!' said Gerard, bending over her, and the jesting words had a soft intonation, which thrilled her like a caress. I really don't think I can stand it, quite. Had she intended to tell him the truth? The moment was not propitious. The music had stopped, and there was a murmur of conversation all over the room. People began to move about, and in the general shifting of position, Paul Halleck, for the first time, caught sight of Elizabeth. She had had some vague, childish idea of what would happen when he saw her. She had pictured him in her unreasoning terror as stepping forward before them all and claiming her as his wife, like a scene in a play. Nothing of the kind took place. She saw at once how absurd her expectations had been. Paul merely started and looked at her, recognition and it seemed pleasure sparkling in his eyes, but with a sudden uncontrollable impulse she turned her own eyes away, as if she did not know him. "'Do you see that man in the doorway?' said Gerard, who, standing as he was behind her, could not note the changes in her face. "'That handsome fellow with the light curls. He has a very fine voice, and has just been engaged as a soloist at St. Chrysostom's. "'Indeed. Is he to sing this afternoon?' she brought out the question with difficulty. "'I hope so,' said Gerard. "'I'd like you to hear him.' "'But perhaps you know him,' he went on. "'He's looking at you as if he expected you to bow.' "'No,' said Elizabeth. "'I don't know him.' She told him this, her second lie that afternoon, without deliberate intention, in sheer lack of presence of mind. 
it was a piteous, involuntary staving off of the inevitable. The next moment that fascination which leads us to our own undoing made her look in Paul's direction, and this time she could not avoid his eager gaze, and bent her head mechanically. "'After all, I believe I must have met him somewhere,' she said hastily. Mrs. Bobby, who for the last quarter of an hour had been determinedly ignoring them both, apparently giving her whole attention to the music and the people, now turned toward them. "'Who is that handsome man who bowed to you, Elizabeth?' she asked. "'I never saw him before.' "'His name is Halleck. I—I I knew him in the country,' said Elizabeth, who had no natural talent for deception, and entangled herself at once in contradictory statements. Gerard's face darkened, and he glanced across at Halleck, whose eyes were fixed on Elizabeth, with a look that seemed to the jealous, fastidious man by her side an intolerable presumption, a look that was not only one of admiration, but, or Gerard imagined so, held in it a curious touch of proprietorship. Confound the fellow, chafed Gerard, he who would fain have kept the woman he loved as he certainly would have kept her picture, shut out from all profane eyes, even admiring ones. He looks at her as if he has discovered her, and she belonged to him. Where can she have met him, and why did she say she hadn't? Mrs. Bobby, too, looked across at Paul. He is certainly very good-looking, she said, and do you mean to tell me, my dear, that such an Adonis flourished in our neighborhood, and I never saw him? Pray, where did you keep him hidden? Before Elizabeth could reply, and to her great relief, D'Auteville came up with the long-haired musician whom he introduced to them, and who proved to be at last one of the celebrities upon whom Mrs. Bobby had counted. In the diversion that ensued, Halleck seemed forgotten, but a few minutes later he sat at the piano and sang songs by Schubert and Franz, which she had heard him sing before, at the time when she had thought his voice the most beautiful voice in the world. Now, as she listened, it left her cold. She had changed so much, and he—no, he had not changed. His voice was not so wonderful as she had thought it, but still it was a fine baritone voice. His art no longer seemed to her remarkable, but it had, if anything, improved, and he was as handsome as ever, in his fair, effeminate style. It was not the voice nor the art that was lacking. It was the answering thrill in herself. It was not his beauty which had failed him. It was she who no longer cared for it. His success with the audience was instantaneous. Even Mrs. Bobby was impressed. "'Your friend sings well,' she whispered to Elizabeth, "'and yet his hair is short. You may introduce him to me if you get a chance.' And this chance immediately presented itself. As Paul, amid the applause that followed his song, walked over to Elizabeth, and quietly shook hands with her. It was the moment that she had dreaded all the time that he was singing. Yet now that it had come, she met it in apparent unconcern and smiling, though with white lips. "'I thought at first, Paul said, that you had quite forgotten me.' "'Oh, no,' she said. "'My memory is not so short.' Then she turned and introduced him to Mrs. Bobby, and went on herself quietly talking to Mr. D'Auteville. Nothing could have been more simple. Not even Julian Gerard, 
who from a distance watched their meeting could have imagined any secret understanding between them. The handsome young singer made a very favorable impression upon Mrs. Bobby, who went so far as to ask him to call, in that impulsive way of hers, which sometimes led to consequences that she regretted. In this case she realized almost as soon as the words had left her lips, that she had done a rash thing, or what Bobby would consider rash. Still the invitation was given and eagerly accepted, even though Elizabeth, standing cold and indifferent, said not a word to second it. By this time the music was over. They were about to leave when someone claimed Mrs. Bobby's attention, and she turned aside for a moment. Paul seized the opportunity, for which he had been anxiously waiting, to whisper in Elizabeth's ear, "'Darling, don't go. I must see you for a moment.' "'You can't speak to me here,' she said impatiently, trying to escape from him. "'But I must see you. Can't you see that I must?' "'You have done without it,' said Elizabeth, without turning her head, "'some time.' "'Because I couldn't help myself. There is such a thing as writing,' she said, in the same low, bitter tone. Yet even as she spoke her conscience misgave her. It was not his neglect that she resented so bitterly. It was his return.' But Paul, not understanding this, was rather flattered than otherwise by the reproach. "'Darling, I will explain when I see you,' he said hurriedly. "'There's no time now. Meet me tomorrow morning, at the Fifty-Ninth Street entrance to the park, at eleven o'clock.' "'Tomorrow? Impossible. I have a hundred things to do.' "'Ah, but you must,' he pleaded. "'I must see you, darling. You look so beautiful. Fifty times more beautiful than before.' "'Hush!' said Elizabeth. How dare you! Someone will hear you. Give me a chance of seeing you, then, he said. It is necessary. You will meet me, will you not, tomorrow morning? If you insist upon it, yes. At the west entrance of the park, you understand? Oh, yes, said Elizabeth impatiently, and hastened to rejoin Mrs. Bobby, who was waiting at the door. Julian Gerard came up gloomily, the whispered conference had not escaped his notice. "'We shall see you to-night at the Landown's ball,' said Mrs. Bobby. "'It is the night for it, isn't it, Elizabeth? I never can keep track of these things.' Gerard looked reproachfully at Elizabeth. "'You promised me,' he said, "'that you would stay at home for a night or two.' She smiled back at him with the old touch of willfulness. "'Did I really make such a rash promise?' she said lightly. Ah, I'm afraid I can't keep it, not to-night. I must be amused. A quiet evening would be unendurable. Her cheeks were flushed, her eyes glittered with feverish gaiety. There was an odd, strained note in her voice. Mrs. Bobby looked at her in some perplexity. Then she glanced up deprecatingly at Gerard. It is her first season, you see, Julian, she said as if in apology. You can't expect her to give up things. No he repeated mechanically. I can't expect her to give up things. He fell back silently in increased gloom. Elizabeth glanced toward him involuntarily as she left the room. Now, she said to herself, I have disappointed him again, and he won't come near me this evening. But it is better so, far, far better, she repeated to herself with a little sob, as she followed her hostess to the carriage. End of chapter 18